0: Alright, as we uh, turn back to Hebrews 1, we will think about over the fact over the past three months we've been walking through this uh, amazing text of Scripture. In fact, uh, we've been walking through this first chapter. We're almost to the end. So we've been looking at this, and it speaks of the greatness of Christ. I've said this so many times. Christ is glorious. He's great. He's amazing. And it tells us this in many ways, that in times past God spoke through the prophets, now through His Son. Uh, He spoke at times and in different ways, in different parts and so forth, of old, now fully and finally in Christ. There's none like Him. And in fact, the argument that we're going to be looking at in this section that we're in, that we've been looking at, of, of Christ compared to the angels is very much parallel to Christ and the prophets. They are servants. He is the Son. The prophets were servants. He is the son. It doesn't take a a lot for us to realize that that is true even in our own world. As you think about a court of a king, when the king's son walks into the court, everyone kneels down, everyone gets quiet. The people who are kneeling down are the servants of the king's court, right? So we can see that parallel even in the world today. I mean, even in the world throughout time, we understand this. The son is special. He is unique. He has a a higher authority, and in this case, an equal glory to His Father. So again, we have seen all these said of Him. He has been appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. All these things we have seen. We've seen that He is the one who purged our sins by and in Himself. And that having done that, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. And that part of this equation, verse 3, we're coming back to today in verse 13. So remember that verse because it's already mentioned wording that would make a Jewish Christian and anyone familiar with the Psalms recognize he's referring to Psalm 110 when he says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then he says what? Well, the very thing we've been looking at for like the last six weeks, this theme of Christ compared to angels, that He has been made better than the angels, as He has by inheritance received a more excellent name than they. And we walk through that, and we will a little bit again today. Today we come to this final point, the final scripture that He is using in chapter 1, and we want to pay attention to it here, and so... I just read the text. I'm going to read only the part we're looking at today, which is verses 13 and 14. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? And it ends with that question. This chapter does. And as we look at this quickly this morning, I want us to look at three points. First of all, starting... With a familiar contrast. Second of all, moving to an awesome psalm. And third, ending with a startling truth. So, beginning with this idea of we, the fact that we want to start with the familiar contrast, that's been the nature of everything we've been looking at, hasn't it, for like six weeks. In fact, you could really go back beyond that to talk about, again, the prophets being contrasted against Christ. But in this case, the contrast between angels and Jesus. We've been looking at this for an extended period of time. And as we've done that, we've noticed that there's much said. That much can be said of Christ that cannot be said of angels. Much can be said of angels that cannot be said of Christ. And so the argument has been built that way. In fact, going back to Old Testament quotations, there have been seven of them that have laid out how Christ is greater than the angels. And so we've been looking at it. The angels were not called singularly the Son of God. Nowhere can you find that. They were called collectively the sons of God, but that's a phrase used of various groups. But never has it ever been said, you are my son to any angel. Neither were they the subject of the great covenantal promise of God's redemptive work in Jesus. For he's the fulfillment of the promise given to David. This Davidic covenant is filled not in angels, but in Christ. He is the one, the seed of David, David's greater son. The angels are created beings. They are not God. They are not divine. Jesus, as truly and fully God, is eternal and thus uncreated. As we looked in Psalm 2 through this journey, it is said a promise is made, but it's not made to any angel that ask of me and I will give you the nations as an inheritance. That's said to no angel, but it is said to Christ. It is said to this heir of David, ask it of me and I will give you all the nations for your inheritance. Now that is another psalm uh, that is very much in view today. When we come to Psalm 110, even though that's Psalm 2, Psalm 10 is thinking of Psalm 2 uh, and you'll see that. And so again, keep that one in mind. Then we saw the economic assignment of angels, because the text says this. When he again brings his firstborn into the world, he says what? Let all the angels of God worship him. So angels are there to worship God. Christ being God is to be worshipped by the angels. Again, nowhere is it said that Christ should worship angels. You see, again, the relationship between them is set, isn't it? We've been looking at this now for an extended time. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but I want us to remember this. And then last week we saw that uh, this glorious Christology offered up, Psalm 45, this royal wedding psalm. And in this, it actually calls the Davidic king God. Now there are many things in that psalm that you could read and, and work through and say this could be applied to David. This could be applied to his earthly heirs, maybe Solomon, maybe. But how do you refer that line? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. How does that apply to David? How would God ever refer to David as, O God? He would not. And so that tells you that there is someone coming in this Davidic line that is pretty impressive. We should already recognize something unique about this Davidic promise. And the New Testament authors, including the author of Hebrews, says, we have no trouble at all justifying or understanding that. It's referring to Christ, who is Himself God. Then he goes to Psalm 102, and again, it speaks in a way very clearly about these attributes that cannot apply to David, cannot apply to any angel or any king Uh, in an earthly sense but applies to this king this son of david seed of david david's greater son heir to his throne in fact heir to all the thrones of this one these things can be said that you made all that exists well that can be said of christ but it cannot be said of david and so again we see this now we've walked through these six old testament references and seen them as contrast between christ and angels and As we have done that, I don't think we need to exposit this text in that way, necessarily. Uh, It is an important text. In fact, we'll come to again in a moment how important it is. But again, I don't think you need to hear this text, too, to go, Oh, finally, now I get it. Now I get that Christ is greater. Although this is kind of the big bat the author brings out to say, I'm going to drive the point home now. It's almost like spiking the football after scoring a touchdown. This quotation is amazing, but I don't think we need it because we recognize Christ is greater than the angels. And so I'm not going to do it in that sense. I want us to look at what it says about Christ and just think about it in terms of Christ and Him alone. But I don't, in doing that, want you to miss that the author is using it as a contrast. And so before we move forward, I want you to look at it again. He says in verse 13, But to which of the angels has he ever said... Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But it doesn't end there, does it? Go to 14. Are they not, now it's speaking of angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So there's a contrast implied here, isn't there? Christ is king, enthroned in glory. At the right hand of the majesty on high, angels are described as ministers the very thing the text just told us a couple of weeks ago they are his ministers they are his servants his messengers they are the ones who do the will of god he sends them out he gives them missions and and things to accomplish they do these things they worship him they are glorious but they are not god christ is the enthroned king of glory And so again, the contrast exists here. It exists. And like I said earlier, it parallels even verses 1 and 2 where you had servants, the prophets, who came and spoke, but now the Son has come and spoken. In the same way, the angels serve. They serve the king, but they also serve those who are the subjects of the king, those who inherit salvation through that king. And that's a glorious thing to think about. It's not our purpose today. It will be our purpose next Sunday. And so I invite you back for that uh, at that time. But again, there is a contrast here. We want to see that. I don't want us to, to leave this and not give the intention of the author to see a contrast between these two things. But I just have a feeling that you all already understand this. That you all have already accepted, yes, I think I have it by now, Christ is greater than the angels. And so... I think we can look at Psalm 110, not just contrasting against the the claim of angels, but against, in fact, uh, but it, just to look at it straight on and see what it says about our great and glorious King. So moving on to this second point, moving to an awesome psalm. I don't know how else you can describe this. It is an awesome psalm. We come to this final Old Testament reference, and uh, it's just another reference in a line of seven references, but... Uh, It would also be unjust to this reference to say it that way because this really is the culmination, if you will, of all the quotes that have come before. William Lane, the scholar, says that this is not just a concluding citation but a climactic citation. And so that's an important one. Uh, Philip Hughes uh, used that word culmination and I like that. It is a culminating quotation for all the authors been arguing throughout this chapter. I think you could argue, rightly, uh, even not considering the Hebrews passage here, if you just said Psalm 110, is it a key verse or a key chapter of Scripture? Of course. Of course. In fact, in that list of the most important chapters of all the Scriptures in terms of biblical theology, Psalm 110 would be right there at the top. I mean, it would be a few with it, but it is incredibly important. In fact, uh, it is so essential that uh, I think we could say something that might even be a little bit shocking. We said along the way that if you understand Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, you really understand broadly the entire argument of the letter. Now, there's detail you need, but you understand if you're in agreement, if you faithfully believe verses 1 through 4, then you're going to faithfully believe this letter. But I think you can argue that if you rightfully understand, rightfully divide Psalm 110, you also understand what this letter is arguing. Because much of the material that is at the heart of what Hebrews is arguing is found in Psalm 110. That is why Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It is why Psalm 110 verse 1 quoted in today's text is also the most quoted verse in the New Testament from the Old Testament. Right off the bat, that ought to tell you there's something important said here. If this is the most quoted verse of the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and if this psalm is the most quoted psalm. It must tell you that this is saying something pretty important. And it is. It is saying something very important. So we could argue that studying Psalm 110 is one of the most fruitful things believers could do to invest their time in this psalm, to study the psalm, to read this psalm, to meditate upon it, to read helpful works upon it, it will help us because it is a key text of Scripture. When we talk about biblical theology, we talk about kind of the biblical overarching argument of what the Bible is telling us. Psalm 110 is essential to that. In fact, if you think about it, you've got in this psalm, as we'll come to it, a reference to the priestly order of Melchizedek. Where else is that found? Genesis? Barely mentioned, Melchizedek shows up on the scene, Abraham encounters him, and then Hebrews at length, and the link between them is Psalm 110, Psalm 110. My friends, we need to recognize how important this psalm is, and so as we come to it, I want us to to do something, I want us to, to hear one thing again that I often say as we go through an Old Testament scripture in a New Testament book. This happens a lot as we go through these letters, but I have to say it to remind us. So often scholars will say, Paul or the author of Hebrews or whomever it is that is quoting the Old Testament, they say, oh, they abuse the text. They abuse the text. What they mean is they're arguing they use it out of context. Well, first of all, we know that if the inspired New Testament author uses it in any context, it is the proper context, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But also, and this is very important for when you're doing your own personal study, go back and read the entirety of the passage or psalm or whatever is being referenced. Because this is shorthand. When the author of Hebrews says, here I'm going to quote uh, Psalm 110.1, he really means go back and look at Psalm 110. He's not just saying, I'm borrowing one verse that helps me make an argument. He's saying, Psalm 110 tells you what I'm telling you. The argument of it. We've tried to look at this along the way. Certainly through Romans. Many of the complaints of scholars about the way Paul used the Old Testament are cleared up if you don't just read the one verse. But if you go back and read the entirety of the passage and see that Paul is actually right on the money theologically with what the passage was talking about. So again, as we come to Psalm 110, let's actually take the time to read the psalm. So if you've got your Bibles, please be turning to Psalm 110. And it's attributed to David, a psalm of David, and that is incredibly important. If there was ever a psalm that we said is the inscription right, we know this one is right, because Jesus said David wrote this psalm. And if Jesus said it, then there's no more debate about it. And uh, so we come now to Psalm 110, a Psalm of David. And listen to what it says The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your mouth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Now, this is an amazing psalm, an important psalm, a key psalm. We've been saying that, of course. But I want us to just walk through it for a moment and see what's said here, and why it's so key. Many things are foundational to what the apostles argue, and they're found in this very psalm. So it begins, The Lord said to my Lord. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, particularly the uh, Synoptic Gospels, you know that Jesus challenges some opponents with this very wording. He says, You've heard it said, you know that David said, The Lord said to my Lord. Now it's David saying that. The Lord, this is the term Jehovah or Yahweh, said to my Lord, that word is Adonai, it means Lord or Master, Yahweh, God's covenantal name, said to my Master. Jesus said, uh, was he not speaking to his own descendant, his own heir, the Messiah? And of course, all Jews say yes. And so the question Jesus is asking is, How can David say of his descendant, how can he call him Lord? Now, we've spoken about this before. There's a bit of rabbinical argument in this because uh, as this letter of Hebrews will argue, it says that Abraham recognized Melchizedek as greater than himself. Why? Because he paid a tithe to Melchizedek. And in doing so, that meant Levi recognized, or Aaron recognized, that the the priesthood of Melchizedek was greater than his own because he was still in Abraham's loins when Abraham paid that tithe. Now, what does he mean? It really means, this Jewish argument, that a descendant cannot be greater than his father. If Levi came from Abraham, if this is the idea, the Levitical priesthood came this way, then If Abraham recognized the greatness of Melchizedek over himself, then he's greater than Aaron. We're going to come to this if you're confused a little bit. We're going to come to this in time. But again, this is the argument. How can David, looking to a future descendant who is his son, 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 sons, go on and on and on. How can he say of that descendant that he is greater than David? He calls him my Adonai. My Lord, my Master. For David to call anyone his Adonai would usually be a reference to God. So Yahweh, the covenantal name of God, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And by the way, our purpose is not to preach the the passage in the Gospels, but they don't have an answer, do they? When Jesus challenges them in this, how does David rightfully call him his Lord? They have no answer because there is no answer outside of its speaking of Christ, the Son of God, who took on flesh and dwelt among us. So again, as we come to this, we see, and this promise that Yahweh is making to His Lord is, Sit at my right hand, be enthroned in the place of honor, majesty, and power. Be enthroned at my right hand. And stay there in this position of reigning until I make all your enemies your footstool. The Scottish theologian John Brown had much to say about this. He said, uh, to make someone a footstool is something that we might miss the importance of. But it means that this enemy is made so inert, so undangerous, so safe, that you can sit in your chair and rest your feet upon them. In your presence. In your presence. It's the idea of subjecting someone so fully, so in such a humiliating way, that they are the prop for your feet as you rest. Now think of how lowly you would see a person to say, get down here on the floor so I can put my feet on your back. The point of this is to say those who are in opposition to Christ, those who have stood in opposition to Him, will be humiliated, humbled, brought low. They will have no ability to stand against Him on that day. I said earlier we're going to be referring back to Psalm 2. If you go back to Psalm 2, you don't have to, you can just go off memory, but if you want to, certainly you can. Psalm 2 makes the argument of the vanity of the kings of the earth. You may remember they're plotting. They're plotting against the Lord and His Messiah. The Lord and His Anointed. That's what that means. His Messiah. Remember what God's response is to all their plotting and planning against Him? He laughs. He laughs. Those who have raised themselves up in opposition against God will be brought low. There is no question about it. That is an utter confidence that we have in the Word of God because God tells us plainly, they will be put in subjection to Christ. They will become as if His footstool. Now, my friends, they will be brought low. The author of Hebrews, in referencing this psalm, is saying to people who are being persecuted in the world, these people who persecuted you and seem so big and mighty now, tomorrow they're not going to be so big and mighty. Tomorrow they're going to be on their knees before the king of all. And they'll just be a footstool. That's how high up the chain they're going to be then. My friends... This text is telling us something amazing about what God is doing in subduing the enemies of Christ. The Lord shall send forth the rod of your strength out of Zion. This is the idea of the rule, right? The kingly rule of Christ is moving out from Zion. Now, uh, this is an eschatological view, uh, but it can also be seen as, uh, even in our own time, as the church is moving out from where? Jerusalem and Judea, even to the ends of the earth. There is a sense in which that kingdom is moving forward in the gospel ministry, isn't there? People are coming into the the family of Christ. They're becoming His servants, becoming His loyal people, if you will. That what's being said is that the Lord's rule is moving out even now. He is bringing a people to Himself, moving forward in His kingdom work even now. Now look at this next verse. Your people shall be volunteers. This is a beautiful idea, isn't it? The army of the Lord is not conscripted. We're not forced in that sense. We are willing. We recognize His glory. We want to serve Him. We march willfully and joyfully for our King. Now these next few verses are very difficult and they are debated what they mean. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, uh, it seems the Hebrew, even Hebrew scholars really struggle with this or it says something like that the army appears suddenly as the dew does in the morning it's very complicated i'm not going to come down on that in any strong way i'm not sure that uh, that we need to today but in following through look at verse four this one who is king is now described as priest we could go right here and launch uh, for a long time we're going to as we come to these verses in hebrews Uh, but but recognize at least this the levitical priesthood were not king's They were priests, right? The kingly line was separate. And yet there are some interesting things that happen with the Davidic kingship. David ministers before the Lord. David sacrifices before the Lord. But here we know this. Christ is unique. He is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, who was priest and king. You can turn back to Genesis and read it right there. He was the king of Salem, right, which we've talked about was the predecessor city of Jerusalem. And he was also called a high priest of the Lord Most High. And so again, my friends, we recognize something unique in this picture of Melchizedek that is being applied to Christ as God says that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. These last verses are just verses of victory. They seem a little graphic to our modern sensibilities, but it's about war. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of His wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. This is a conquering king subduing his enemies. And then he shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore he will or shall lift up the head. Again, the idea is he's in a, a blessed position. Even as this warfare is going on, he is drinking by the brook provided by the Lord. So again... You see this message here of a conquering king. A conquering king. He is subduing his foes. The author of Hebrews is saying he is the king being referred to in Psalm 110. As we talk about this enthroned king, we are recognizing this king priest, this unique king priest installed gloriously reigning at the right hand of the majesty on high who is subduing all his enemies. Now, if you think about that, you begin to recognize how this really is a comfort to the people that this is being written to. Spurgeon said that Christ's enthronement is the surest guarantee that all things are moving toward their ultimate victory. What can you add to that except amen? Amen. That is what's being told us here. Everything is moving as God has declared it will toward victory. But that means I want to end this with a startling truth. Because that amen brings us to a startling truth, a startling truth. All the world, this text tells us, is broken down along this dividing line. Those who are marching with the king and those who are being subdued forcibly by the king. That's the dividing line. You may remember when we were going through 1 Thessalonians, Paul says it is an evident token of the righteous judgment of God. And we said what it seems to be saying is, That this persecution that you're living in, in the meantime, is an evident token of God's righteous judgment throughout time. That those who are opposing you now are His enemies too. And that He will subdue them. He will subdue them. Even if now you're struggling, even if now you're suffering, recognize that Christ is with you and you are with Him and He is marching forward, subduing His enemies. Now, those... Who are not marching with Christ, that means, are those who will be crushed under His might and power. Now, if you notice, in this text and in 1 Thessalonians and in Romans, there is no third category. There's no third category. There's no sideline position where you can say, well, I'm not really against Christ, but I'm not really with Him either. I'm just kind of an agnostic here in the middle somewhere. I can't find anywhere in the Scriptures that give you such a position. I think that's Paul's argument you are in Adam or you are in Christ. There is no third option. You are in rebellion against God in Adam or you are reconciled to a holy and righteous God by Christ's righteousness. There is no third category. That's it. No third place to stand. And what I think the author of Hebrews recognizes that's going on in his day is that the recipients of this letter are trying to carve out a third position. We'll just go back to Moses. Moses. If you remember when we went through Romans, I said then that Paul's point, one of the points he was trying to make is, you're in Adam or Christ, you're not in Moses. There is no third position in Moses. That's his entire point. Even the Jewish people need the gospel. That's what he's dealing with when he says, "Uh, well, if we've been given the oracles of God, what good is it? And he says, well, you were given the oracles of God. Like, you were given a great position in God's work, but you still need what all that pointed to, which is the gospel. You still need it. So again, it's a reminder that there is no third position. How could there be? Moses is pointing to Jesus. Psalm 110 points to Jesus. Psalm 2 points to Jesus. He is the one who must reign at the right hand of the majesty on high until all his enemies are put under his feet. So the question for the Hebrews, the people receiving this letter, is will they stay with Jesus no matter the struggle? Will they stay with him? Or will they reject Christ and try to find a comfortable place in the world? Such questions go down to the heart of what we actually believe. We can claim to believe anything. But what do we really believe? If we believe that our existence is only in this world, maybe we do what they're thinking of doing. We find that comfortable place in the world, that safe haven. But if we believe that that is not an eternally safe haven, but will fall under the judgment of God, then we recognize the truth of what's being argued here, that all things will be put under Christ's reign. Our king will rule and reign. How does that affect us? Well, for one thing, it should affect our outlook on all things. As we stand on the 4th of July, many people are very concerned about our nation, where it's been going for decades, where it's heading tomorrow and the next day. I mean, We're Americans. We're citizens. We should have some concern. But our ultimate hope is not in America. We are earthly citizens here, but we are heavenly citizens of God's kingdom. If America were to not exist in 50 years or 100 years, Christ's kingdom is still going to move forward. So we have an utter confidence that transcends anything that goes on in this world. An utter confidence that's given to us by the Word of God that tells us that He is subduing all His enemies. And so we have to proclaim this truth. And it's also why the enemy wants so badly to silence the churches. Because we're the only people who are making such an argument, who are telling the world that all things will ultimately work out. They will be subdued under Christ's feet. That's what C.S. Lewis said 70 years ago. In the aftermath of a great world war, he wrote the following, enemy occupied territory. That is what the world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king landed, you might say, in disguise. And is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you are really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. That is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. You know, I don't want to get too much on current events, but I did find it amazing last year, I know many of you did as well, that under the same guidelines, casinos could open, bars could open, but churches couldn't. Why is that the case? Why did people seem to want churches closed down? Well, C.S. Lewis told you 70 years ago, 70 years ago. And we can find some Christian authors who wrote about it long before then. That the world does not want the word of God preached, does not want the gospel of God preached. So has the enemy's strategy really changed? I don't think so. But that's the larger kind of societal implications. But I think there are also some personal implications. What are we to do about Jesus, this righteous and holy king-priest? What are we to do about him? Will we turn from Jesus because the world promised to offer us a little ease, a little comfort? A little temporary comfort, do we recognize that if we take that deal with the world, we'll be devastated on the day of judgment? Where will we stand? Which side are we on? Are we with Christ? Or are we with the world? That's ultimately the question. Are we with Christ, or are we with the world? Are we trusting in him, proclaiming him as our king and Lord? Or are we comfortable in the world forsaking that king, destined to the end of the wicked hinted at? In the very text we're reading here, Psalm 110, I pray that you're counted among the people of Christ. If you are, then this morning, our King graciously invites you to come to His table as we celebrate what He has accomplished for us.